your if your goal is museum construction, that's fine. If your goal is poverty alleviation or something else where the communities you're serving are very socially removed from your own social network, then you must do the work to go against kind of the existing privilege of access. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listener, know the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And please do subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference for us. Today we have two wonderful guests, Craig Silverstein and Mary Obelnicki. They are a couple who have founded Echidna Giving. It's a foundation that looks at educating girls in the developing world. It's a very interesting conversation that we're going to have today because uh, Craig and Mary have both signed the Giving Pledge. And, uh, and Craig is also uh, employee number one at Google, uh, the first person that Larry and Sergey ever hired. So I think on many different elements, it's a very interesting conversation we're going to have, both from a philanthropic journey perspective, but also in terms of uh, Echidna Giving and the philanthropic work they're doing to educate girls in the developing world. So without further ado, Craig and Mary, a heartfelt welcome. Welcome on board. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's an abs- absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Well, why don't we start with the Kidna Giving? It'd be great to find out a little bit more about uh, about the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a Kidna Giving is the vehicle that we have t- to do the main focus of our philanthropy, which is girls' education in the developing world. The goal is to spend money over the course of our lifetime. We want to try to get it out relatively fast as opposed to living forever that will um, be able to make a real difference in this field. It turns out that girls' education is something that everyone knows is has the potential to make a huge difference in the lives of the communities that are affected and in the greater community around them. But it turns out that there's not a lot of organizations or people or money that's focused exclusively on girls' education. So we felt we feel there's a real opportunity there um, to make a difference. Craig, why don't you tell them about your theory of change? Like, you're, you're, that ends with world peace, of course. Oh, yeah. So, it starts with girls' education and ends with world peace. It sounds, sounds great. In the middle. Uh, Mary's absolutely right that when I went into thinking about how I wanted to do, to do giving, it was very difficult for me to think about where to, to begin. There's, mm-hmm. there are so many worthy causes, and how do you pick one to work on? Um, I knew early on that I wanted to focus on an area where you could make a sustainable change Mm-hmm. Um, where it's not something that was easy to, to overthrow or they needed to keep coming back for money to, to sustain it um, um, afterwards where you, there was like a, a dependency that you were forming. Um, and you can think of a lot of, a lot of areas, but each time um, I kept getting stuck on the fact that you couldn't really make change in, in this area without making change in some previous area first. So mm-hmm. you can't really have a good... You can't really help grow the economy without good infrastructure. You can't get good infrastructure without political stability. You can't get political stability without, and you know, it goes on and on. And eventually you get into a cycle and you have to start thinking about where can you kind of pull that thread? Where can you start to make a difference where you don't need there to be prerequisites before you can start to make a change. And the place I ended up with was education. And I ended up on with girls education in particular for two reasons. One is that in a lot of communities in the world still today, there is 
gender inequality when, when parents and communities think about education, and it's the girls who suffer. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity there um, to make improvements. And second, that educating girls, I believe, has more salutary effects on the community than educating boys does. Because girls, they grow up to be women who not only are themselves educated and are able to contribute to their society in ways that they can't as effectively when they're not educated, but they also tend to be more responsible for child care and for passing down those values of education to the next generation. And so I really felt that over time, not right away, but over time, if we focus on girls' education, we can transform entire communities to really value education, value the fact that everyone in the community has an education, and that everyone can contribute to using that education to improve their community. That's excellent. And there's there's some short-term studies that have been done as well about economic impact of mm-hmm. what what women do with marginal uh, increases in their income versus men and how much they reinvest back into their family versus men. And so really when you think about poverty alleviation, the the mothers of these kids are the best allies of the um, the global development community. Mm-hmm. And how, how long have you been um, pursuing this endeavor? Oh my goodness, I lose track of time. A while. 10 years maybe? Probably 10 years. And you're, you mentioned that you're not looking for a foundation that's going to be out there in perpetuity, that you actually have considerable funds and you're looking to deploy now uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming years as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, you know, we look at foundations that try to live in perpetuity and there's a lot of issues when the founders are gone, they're no longer around and it's people, other people trying to interpret what their wishes are. And maybe they're trying to balk those wishes if they don't if they don't agree with that priority. We believe very much in being focused. We made the focus on girls' education in the developing world, and we're sticking with that for the next 40 years. Where it's easy to get distracted by you know the latest hotness, and sure. we're being focused. And we feel that the best way to do that is to have us being responsible for it for the entire lifetime. So we imagine hopefully we'll have 40 more years and. We are committed to funding up to $700 million over the, that time frame. Fascinating. Fascinating. And you are relatively young. I mean, you, you, I think uh, I was doing a little bit of research before, before the call today. And uh, yes, philanthropy is part of your life, but you also have careers and you have family and you have many different interests. So it's interesting to see you embarking on this journey early on and also trying to juggle various things. It's been very difficult, I won't, I won't lie. Um, we were coming up with a strategy document for Echidna, thinking about like how, what do we focus on for the next three to five years as we, as we go towards this overarching aim. At the same time, we had three kids who were age four or younger. Right. Um, and you know, it doesn't give us a lot of time to really to focus on it. And you know, career also takes a lot of time. Um, sure. We've depended a lot on having great staff. We treat this not as a hobby, but as something that is something that requires full-time commitment, and we don't have that full-time commitment. And so we spend what time we do have hiring people who can spend the full-time commitment. Sure. And I imagine both of you being very conversant and very happy with numbers and data and, and technology, that probably helps in making your organization perhaps a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more robust when it comes to your philanthropy. I think it helps that we are we part of our culture is certainly a lean team mm-hmm. and that allows us to make decisions quickly 
because we are not an institution that needs to protect itself uh, reputationally or um, in and have it exist in perpetuity, we're willing to take risks that mm -hmm. I think other organizations are uh, reluctant to. How did you decide to get into philanthropy in the first instance? Was it just you know, an abundance of wealth early on and then, and then you said, well, I see some of my, our, our peers doing philanthropy, so let's do it. Or what was the, um, the process that led you to where you are now in that, uh, in that philanthropic journey? Yeah, I would say not at all the peers. In fact, a lot of my peers weren't doing philanthropy as anything more than opportunistically or as a hobby. Mm -hmm. That's still true for a lot of people. Um, for the same reasons I was mentioning before, it's very difficult to have the time to spend on it to do it right. And I think that people are afraid to get started on it without being able to do it right because, you know, you're giving money away. You don't want to waste that. The way I got started is, um, as you say, I, I had a lot of money early in my life. And philosophically, I knew I didn't need it. Um, my, my own needs were certainly well below the amount of money I had. And I don't believe philosophically in giving it all to my children. Um, mm -hmm. which I want them to have enough money that they can do anything they want but not enough money that they can do nothing. Sure. <laughs> I think that's um, a good way of looking at it. So, you know, there's, all, there, there's a narrow band of how much money that is, and it's a lot less than the money that we have. And so what do you do with the rest of it? And, you know, it seemed obvious to me that the best use of it was to try to make the world a better place. And there are various ways that you can do that. Um, you know, had I believed that the best way to make the world a better place was to reform the political system, then I don't think I would have been able to be you know, a philanthropic or nonprofit organization. But, you know, I went through this process of figuring out a theory of change and came up with Girls Education in the Developing World. And philanthropy is, I think, a perfect way to address that. I think also interesting in that journey is when Craig started, he thought it was really just about the um, the money. He was like, I can do it anonymously. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want people to know it's me necessarily. And Certainly at the point when we signed the Giving Pledge together, there was a conscious choice to say, oh, no, it's us. This is us doing it intentionally because we were trying to be explicit and maybe create some expectations around what other young people, especially in Silicon Valley, could be doing. You know, there's Silicon Valley and California and startups in general have just so many people who have wealth early in life, which hasn't been the case traditionally with philanthropy. And so the way philanthropy has been approached in a, a lot of typical senses are it's like end of life giving or mm -hmm. retirement giving, or I'm going to create a foundation now that I'm done making my money and I'm too old to figure out and work the problem myself. And so I've got to create a foundation to like solve this problem I care about. So we were trying to say, look, Hey guys, step up. Here's, here's what we're doing. What can you be doing? Yeah, let's talk, talk budget, Mary. Um, when Mary and I were, were thinking about this podcast and thinking about the messages that were most important to us, mm -hmm. um, one, of the most, one of the things that came up, which I think may surprise people thinking to get into philanthropy seriously, is budget. And I think that uh, one of the answers to, to the question you just asked involves the budget as well. As Mary mentioned, I really wanted to be anonymous. And the reason is I didn't want to suddenly be bombarded with asks that I would then evaluate and know what to do with. And in reality, that hasn't happened too much. Um, it was something I, I was worried about unnecessarily. But what gave me the comfort to be more open and to 
be more visible is that we came up with a budget and so we had a framework for evaluating asks or for responding to asks that um, wasn't just like, oh, I don't think your idea is good enough. I don't like what you're doing. And mm -hmm. talk about kind of how we think about it. Mary. Yeah, sure. So I think the key, the key for a budget in philanthropy is that it's a goal for spending, not a cap. Mm -hmm. And the work is to deploy that capital into whatever issues that you care about. And what really helped us in sort of sorting the social asks that you get versus our sort of strategic asks is we have a pile, of, uh, a pool of money that is for our strategic initiative, girls education, and we have a pool of money that's for personal giving. Okay. That are like our community-based giving. So that's one way to think about it if somebody has a strategy. But I think the core of the budgeting part of it is we went through and we created these buckets. So we said, here's our budget, and this would work for anyone regardless of size of budget, you know, like whatever their annual budget is. It's, but here's your goal. And you create these buckets, you know, start at $10 if you want, $10. But they have to be very distinct, the buckets, $10, $100, $1,000, you know, $5,000. Mm -hmm. So that when, they, when an ask comes in, you get a feel for where that fits in your strategy. And so when you create your budget, you say, well, our goal is to give away two or three really large gifts a year. These are the organizations where we're on the board or we really are like personally invested. Then our tiers tend to be the next one down is like things that our parents really care about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then the next one down tends to be things that our friends really care about or one-time gifts for like, you know, like let's give a boost to an organization that is in our local community and they're like building, you know, like a new playground or something. And then, you know, like the, these are kind of the, the cat, you create these sort of emotional categories that you can then, when somebody comes in and is like, please buy a table at my event, you know where that ask fits and you're not reactionary. You're deliberate about how you support these things. And it makes the no a lot easier as well, or the choice a lot easier because you've seen it against your overall strategy. And your budget. So the key is you have slots. Like you may have, decide, you look at your budget, you might decide you have five slots at the $10,000 level. And someone is like, why don't you buy this $10,000 table at this event that, you know, is really mm -hmm. important. Why don't you donate $10,000 to this local organization? You can be like, well, I've got five slots. Do I want to use one of them for this? And if you say yes, and it's great. And if you say no, then you can just tell them, you know, it's a great organization and a worthy cause, but we don't have the budget for it this year. Um, maybe I can give less money in one of the lower buckets where I still have slots left, or maybe next year there'll, there'll be a slot. But you have some sort of framework with which to answer them rather than having to say like, oh, is this a worthy enough cause that I want to spend money on? Or how good is this friend to me? Or yeah, how many sure. times they call me asking how guilty do I feel? Like those aren't great decision-making criteria. And I think the other thing that um, I think really helps us is we have a minimum. So everybody, you, everybody gets those emails, please support me. I'm running the marathon. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm doing this. Please help my kids school. And we said, there's a certain amount we say yes to no matter what. So like whatever ask it is, there's a minimum for us. And that's in our budget. Right. Yeah. So, we have like the two hundred and fifty dollars. I think is our minimum, and we have we have like a hundred slots for that. So a hundred people can ask us to run a marathon, <laughs> and the hundred first person we have to say 
to say no to. Craig, this is a public podcast. I just want. Yeah, to- it is. <laughs> you, you just this is going to be a. The, yeah. The- <laughs> um, I'm not going to tell anyone our email address. No. Um, we need to know you personally. <laughs> It's good. This it's good that you have this sort of framework and and self discipline. Running a marathon. So those are the <laughs> yeah, or well, you know, healthy living is very good. And do you do everything through a kid not giving then, or do you have some of your philanthropy done through just personally? The structure that we're talking about is mostly personal giving. Right. And then our team uses a similar structure, give or take, for our. Um, philanthropic are like our akin to giving girls ed stuff, but there's a much more complicated rubric there. Sure. And how often do you review your, uh, your framework? Once a year. In okay. fact, we have to do it today. <laughs> oh, right after this phone yeah. call. Yeah. When we're, when we set the budget for the next year, we kind of say, Oh, Hey, was this right? You know, are there, did we underspend certain categories? I think that's challenging. I think that happens to us. And, and so we end up, you're like, the big gifts usually, because there's so few of them, we don't have a problem with those. But it's, when we leave space in the middle, we tend to underspend that category, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good that you're, you know, doing a little bit of retro, retrospective uh, analysis there on how things went. Uh, let me ask you, in terms of the, the, the journey so far as philanthropists and uh, as learning from the things that work and the things that don't necessarily work, what are some of the things that have really surprised you that have really paid off well in philanthropy and maybe some of the things that were counterintuitive that uh, you thought were going to be great and maybe didn't turn out to be great? So one thing that, I, that worked surprisingly well, I think, was we got started in philanthropy giving to regranting organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was focused on the developing world, improving girls' education in the developing world, but I knew nothing about you know these communities that I really wanted to see this change happen in. And I was an outsider. I wasn't able to evaluate proposals and I wasn't able to evaluate outcomes. So we went with the regranting organizations where which are like they're based in the US or the UK or somewhere else in the developed world. But they are the ones who evaluate grants and evaluate outcomes and have people on the ground in these communities. And I went into this, and I did it because I had to, basically. But I came into it thinking that it was a waste of money to involve the middleman. Uh-huh. You know, eventually I'd get to the point where I'd be doing this all directly. But I found out that actually it's a big money saver to involve these middlemen because if I had to go evaluate these things myself – and fly out to these communities or take a lot of time to do it, it would be really inefficient. And it's much better to be working with an organization that can afford to have someone living in these communities because they're supporting, you know, well, or ideally from that community as well. Or or from that community and, you know, have the expertise and the time and resources to find those people and to, to cultivate the knowledge that's necessary to do a good job. And so, Spending money on these regranting organizations was money well spent, and I did right. not expect that going in. I thought it would be money that I had to spend, but not money that I would appreciate having spent. And the team at Akidna Giving, then, you mentioned it's fairly lean and uh, dynamic. Uh, how does it work? Because you're, you're based in the West Coast in the States, uh, and your work is really on the front lines in the developing world. So how easy is it to identify really great delivery partners or or, or collaborative opportunities on the ground in places that are geographically very distant from where you are. We have a really great team that makes it look easy, but I have to imagine it's really it's really difficult for them, um, and that they have to 
use their experience and their expertise and their their really good instincts around this area. That's um, one of the things we look for when we're hiring them. I also think it's you know it's part of the learning journey about how, in terms of how we do philanthropy. Mm-hmm. You know, Craig started with larger NGOs that were really high quality and working well, but you know, based in the U.S. and slowly as we understand the problem better as the team has contacts in the various countries, then you learn. The, the team learns, we learn, we get more comfortable with certain kinds of risks and what's going on in certain communities. And through those bigger organizations, you get introduced to the smaller organizations who are often partnering to provide program or whatever in the community. And you kind of rely on the first organization to help you vet the next one and expand your reach. Sure. Um, I actually want to talk a little bit about staff. Um, another thing that was really hard for me getting started, and I think is a barrier for other people, is you know we're like, oh, we can't do it full time. We're going to hire people to do it. But how do you hire those people? How do you find them? And how do you make sure they're the right fit for you? And how do you delegate responsibility to them? That's all really hard. And, you know, we just talk about it like, oh, yeah, we just hired really good staff. But that wasn't an easy process at all. Mm. Um, The hardest part is the first hire, um, the first person. And they really have to be kind of simpatico with the way you're thinking about the world because then you can ask them to hire the the subsequent people. But finding that first person is really difficult. And I think that one reason people don't get involved in philanthropy earlier or treat it as a hobby for so long is because they don't know how to go about doing that first hire. That's a great point. So I don't really have a great answer to that. (laughs) I found my first hire through a reference from a friend of mine who knew someone who had kind of been in the philanthropy space. Although, I mean, it wasn't a friend. It was your financial planner. Okay. He wasn't. I I mean, he's (laughs) fair but I mean, he... What's important there is that he had, he was somebody who was one step closer to, you know, big money, whatever, you know, it's that he knew people in that space in a way that we didn't. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think that's right. Um, he, you know, we, I was using, right, so, and he, he knew someone who was looking for a job and who had kind of experience, had no experience with girls' education or the developing world. Um, that wasn't important to us. Um, they needed to have the flexibility and the willingness to learn about those areas, and it's been a years long yes. process. Um, um, the person we hired felt like really at sea for the first few years and is only now 10 years in starting to feel like they're really an expert in the field that like um, you know other people can can look to as a resource and that's fine with us we're not we don't need people to hit the ground running we need them to be committed to staying with it for long enough that they can gain the expertise and to have the skills that you need to learn the stuff Mary made a really good point as we were talking about this earlier that the um do you want to do you want to say what it is about the skill in hiring oh yeah so i think a lot of people who go into philanthropy think that they're going to solve the problem themselves because they never they solve some other problem themselves they have a business created from scratch so they're like oh yeah of course i'm i care about this problem i'm going to create a new organization to do this well okay do you really want to spend the time on your philanthropic endeavors in the same way that like you personally invested in your growing company? If that's not true, then you need to think about it differently and you need to step back and find someone else to be your CEO rather than kind of half-assing it mm. in as your own CEO of your philanthropy in that hobby way. And I think that, I think 
that professionalism really matters. But the thing that translates the best from the business career that those people had to philanthropy is they understood how to identify talent. They didn't get to where they were if they didn't know how to hire good people to work for them. And so to turn to that skill and then delegate, I think is one of the key things to do if you're really to get over that hiring hump. There are many people, there are many people who have a lot of resources who are just uh, hesitant to take that step and they do philanthropy, but they do it in an underwhelming or unremarkable manner. So I think what you're saying about professionalizing it, there's a lot to be said for that. I think part of the challenge too is that if you don't, if you're not deliberate, if you don't have your own staff, you're not going to execute your own strategy. So if you have your own strategy, you need your own staff and you need to professionalize it. Otherwise, you end up, I think, in a lot more responsive philanthropy where there's all sorts of organizations all over the world that have professional development officers that will happily act as your professional philanthropic advisor as well. And they're just like, thank you very much for writing this check. Come neck by in three years and see your name on this medical school. And and so if you don't have your own staff to do the work, you end up relying on institutions that can afford to have professional grant making or grant accepting staff, shall we say. And um, and you don't find the organizations that need it the most. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from working in the developing world is that to really think about the privilege of access that wealthy organizations and wealthy communities have. And as a philanthropist, who has access to you to make the ask easiest, right? It's our mm -hmm. friends and our family who can text us. Please support my organization. Well, if there are friends, they're already doing, you know, probably doing well, they live in a community with, you know, it's like, it's very reinforcing the privilege of access and the communities that need you the most and can benefit the most from your Money are many, many uh, social circles away from you. And so how do you jump that gap? Well, you need to go looking for them. You need to put in the effort to find those organizations. You can't expect them to come to you. That's a, that's a, a good way of looking at it. I know on your website, there's something that's really interesting and I think a little bit unique in that on the one hand, it, and by the website I'm talking about, a kid not giving, uh, it says, look, we... We, we don't necessarily accept unsolicited funding applications. We have a strategy and we go out proactively looking for what aligns with us. But also in the next paragraph, it says that we don't want to miss out on, on some really great things. So that if you are out there in the, in the greater world and there's something that you're doing that you think is strategically aligned with what we do and so forth, we'd like to hear about it. And I thought that was really nice because that's somewhat unusual. Normally, uh, either there is an open grant making, you know, uh, process and, and, and application process, or there isn't. But in your case, you seem to acknowledge that you are proactively looking on your own behalf to identify really great things. But you also don't want to turn the, you know, don't want to close the door on great ideas showing up at your doorstep either. Yeah, I think we can get away from that with that because we're so focused. It's really easy for an organization to tell if they spend any time on our website at all, whether they are fit for us or not. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of organizations that are not as focused um, would have a lot of trouble with that strategy, but it works really well for us. Yeah, and our staff can easily dismiss the things that don't fit our strategy. Sure, sure. 
was it difficult? Was it a difficult choice deciding on um, signing the giving pledge? And I ask that because also, since you mentioned that initially, maybe there was a, a, an inclination to, to to do things anonymously. Obviously, signing the giving pledge is a very public statement. Yes, that was the hardest part about it. I mean, deciding to give away the money was a decision I had already made. So mm-hmm. you know, I could uh, kept more money than I'm planning on keeping and still been able to sign the giving pledge. So that was fine. But the going public was very difficult. And that's when I really had to think about that and have the conversations with, with Mary and with my, my friends and with other people who had experience with this to understand what it meant to make the leap to, to go public like that. Luckily, people much more famous than me also signed the Giving Pledge that year. So there wasn't as much publicity around my signing it as there might have been. Yeah, and that's nice. But it's, I mean, it, it's constantly a concern for us mm-hmm. about you know, how much does anonymity protect us and protect our kids? Okay. And so, you know, signing the giving pledge needed to have this big, this upside, like what was the benefit of being public? And we talked about that a lot already around inspiring others in similar situations to ours. Absolutely. Absolutely. What does, um, well, when you're looking at, at, at say, 2030 and all the targets for the sustainable development goals and so forth. What, what does success look like to you in, in 10 years' time? If we're doing another podcast in 10 years' time, what would you like to, um, to say was, the, was success? Yeah, so um, we know a lot about, maybe Mary, you should speak to this because you know the most about it. Um, but we know a lot about what makes girls successful um, in school. And I think success for us in 10 years looks like when we look out into the world and we see those 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 um, programs and those techniques that we know make girls successful in school, we see them being implemented widely. And what are some of those things, Mary? Oh, thanks, Craig. Uh, so I think when we started, it was we were just working from this hypothesis that if girls finish secondary school, that makes all these other life outcomes better for them. Mm-hmm. But the causation there wasn't clear and. And organizations working and trying to get girls to finish secondary school, first were, first they thought the barrier was just financial. If we give them scholarships, they're going to make it. And then they realized, oh, well, it's about community support and making better choices. And are there, how much support do they have from their parents? Are they good at making like good life choices that keep them in school? Mm-hmm. And so... I think where a lot of the, I guess, the horizon of investigation is right now is around social emotional learning. And in the developing world, it's often referred to as life skills. Mm-hmm. And what a big difference that makes in, in academic success. And so most of our investment right now is in social emotional learning and trying to figure out what are the key components of that And when does it matter? So in secondary school, it's really obvious these gaps in performance between girls and boys. Mm -hmm. So obvious in secondary school, it must have started earlier. And um, right now we're looking at social emotional development in adolescence because it's a big time when the brain changes and also in early childhood when another time when all of that is starting to be formed. And so what can you do about gender equity then and expectations and are girls getting the same sort of academic support or just sort of peer support in those age groups? So that's 
that's sort of the boundary for us in terms of investigation. And 10 years from now, I hope we know a lot more about what's successful there. And as Craig talked about, when we see what's successful and what really makes a difference, that we found a way to have larger institutions bring that up to scale, governments and school districts and things like that. That's great. Where whereabouts are you are you, are most of your uh, projects based? Is it Sub-Saharan Africa? We have a lot in India and a lot of in East Africa are the two big clusters. But a lot of organizations are geographically focused. We are not that geographically focused. We don't try to have people on the ground in the communities where we really benefit, where there's a big benefit from being geographically focused. Um, so we take ideas from everywhere. I think there's all there are places all throughout the, the world, including parts of the U.S. that I think could really benefit from from spending um, more attention to girls' education. Are you feeling optimistic about being able to uh, drive forward systemic change? Uh, depends on the day. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I talked about how we, I thought about girls' education as being someplace you could kind of lock in gains. That once you get the gains, it's self-reinforcing. You have people who are transmitting those values to their kids and you've got community pressure and so forth. So I do feel optimistic that once the change starts, it'll start to snowball. Um, getting the change to start can be difficult and you do see places where there's a reaction against that and that that can be um, distressing when you thought you had a partner and then you know political situation changes or yes. something else if you don't anymore. Um, but we see a lot of... Uh, governments throughout the world right now who are really receptive to these ideas and um, I think it's a, a good time to be focusing on it. Absolutely, absolutely. So from, um, since you're both so involved with philanthropy and uh, a big part of our audience is really philanthropically minded, either already doing it or looking to do it, what's the, um, if you had a key takeaway for our audience, uh, either individually or, or as a couple, What's that key takeaway that you'd love for our audience to keep in mind after they uh, finish listening to the podcast? Oh, yeah. Well, we, have, we thought about it ahead of time, and we have three. Ah, so we can, wonderful. We can battle them off. So the first one is definitely, you know, like, start and be humble and learn as you go. Mm-hmm. Sounds perfectly sensible to me. To do them. <laughs> okay, and then the next one is to just, you know, like, what we talked about already, which was be deliberate and have a, bu a budget, track mm -hmm. it, and don't be reactive. You know, don't just be reactive. Um, yeah. And then, um, and then that the people with the greatest need don't have access to you to ask. Yes. If, if your goal is museum construction, that's fine. If your goal is poverty alleviation or something else where the communities you're serving are very socially removed from your own social network, then you must do the work to go against kind of the existing privilege of access. That is really excellent. It's so true, right? I mean, so, so people who, who are in such need don't have access to the West Coast or to New York or to London. They, they really struggle to, um, to make that, um, that need manifest itself in, into the philanthropic circles. Tied to that is, you know, everyone will acknowledge that the dollar or the pound or whatever can go further in the developing world in terms of impact. And so they should reflect to themselves, well, if that's true, why aren't I investing in those places now? Yes, yes, yes. 
One thing before we wrap up, and I just have to ask, um, what was it like being employee number one at Google? Um, there's a lot of long hours. Um, so, you know the movie The Social Network? I do. There's an almost entirely not that. Um, you know, there's, it's, I mean, it was doing stuff that I loved, so I loved doing it, but, you know, it's a lot of long hours hunched over a computer screen, and you don't really understand the impact it's making um, in the world, except very indirectly when you start to see press coverage and you start to see people coming up to you and saying that, you know, I heard about this thing called Google, and then you find out that they did not actually hear about it from your mom. Sure. And that, you know, that's kind of what you see um, as happening. But, you know, I started doing Google because I really believed in the power of making information available. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a ton of information on the web. There was even a ton of information on the web way back then. Um, and I believe that Google did a better job of surfacing that information to people who needed it than anything prior. So, you know, it was kind of a, a labor of love for me. I'm very, I'm very grateful and very happy that it turned out to be so successful. But you know, the reason I did it is because, you know, I believed in the mission of the company and, and I loved doing the work of it. That's, that's, in, a nerdy, in a nerdy sense, you know, you're successful is your demand outpaces your server capacity. <laughs> <laughs> we had to keep going by the computers. That's how we knew we were doing okay. Excellent. Excellent. But it must be great also that, you know, you've both seen the world transformed through some of these endeavors and you know that it's possible with the right idea and the right uh, uh, energy, uh, you, you are able to transform the landscape all around us. Yeah, and now we're trying to make a difference in girls' education. Well, good yeah. luck with that. I sincerely wish you the very best of luck with the Kidna Giving and with your philanthropy and with everything else that you're doing to, uh, to drive forward both girls' education and just in general the, uh, the philanthropic landscape. Thank you so very much to both of you for, for joining me today, all the way from the West Coast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with both of you, meeting you, and learning from you as well. Thank you. We really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. And, and I wanted to, to give a shout out to you. I've done multiple podcasts before, and you know, interviewing is an art, and um, I just want to say I was, I was impressed with the job that you did. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.